Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my loveliest listeners. And I'm back, at least in most part. For those of you who are catching up, I underwent surgery last week and have been recovering since that point. I'm still in a bit of pain and fatigue, but nothing I can't handle. The real issue is only at night, where it can be difficult, you know, not sleeping on my right side where the cups were made. But I'll find a way, you brilliant peeps. Nonetheless, I'm back, and I've edited two old-time radio episodes as my thank yous for your patience. A huge thank you to all of you who reached out to me via email whilst I was away and in surgery. I've appreciated every single one of your emails, even if I haven't been able to get to them. With a reply, rest assured I've read them all. Just haven't had the energy at present to reply. But I'm deeply grateful, and we'll get to them this week. Your first remastered old-time radio episode is... If a body needs a body. A duo of robbers turn murderers, and stealing from others in a way that no human has the right to do so. And your second tale, the assassination recounts the significant event of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, all brought to you by Thomas Highland from Crime Classics. Now, the second tale was on the nose for remastering, but I thought it still had a lot of great quality audio in it, and shares a bit of interesting information about Abraham Lincoln's death that I had no idea about. You'll see what I mean. Now, before we start, I want to say my thank yous in advance today, because I'll be heading off to catch some more rest. But I can't do an episode without thanking those that support this show directly. So, first up are my jaw-droppingly awesome trio of Onighty Titans, Marvelous Moonstone Maya, Decisively Awesome divided by Zero, and Startlingly Brilliant Solstra. You are the very special people that support this show at a level that sees me constantly punching upwards. Thank you so, so much. My white tea warlord, Lesosaurus Rex, I just got your email, thank you so much mate. We'll be reading this during the week. And a double thank you for your brilliant and ongoing support. You're awesome, mate. And my old grain forces. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, and Teton Rinka One. Thank you all. As I always say, you're the lifeblood of this podcast. And now, as I get my rest, I bring you, lovely listeners, two episodes back-to-back of Crime Classic OTRs. See you Wednesday for sure though, mates. And as always, till next, we meet. Enjoy. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland, with another true story of crime. Listen. That's the way a room sounds. A particular room in a narrow street in Edinburgh, Scotland. Someplace on the wall, there was a drip. When the room was still, when there was a lodger in it, asleep, that was the sound. But listen again. That's the way it sounded when it rained, because the room was just below gutter level, and the rainwater rushed by the room's only window. Many lodgers caught cold in this room. They were lucky. Many other lodgers wound up on a dissecting table. They were murdered by Mr. Burke, who smothered by Mr. Hare, who held. So tonight, my report to you, if a body need a body, 
Just call Burke and Hare. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. Edinburgh in 1826, a city famous for lassies, laddies, people coming through the rye, scotch, kilties, and medical schools. It is this last I'd like to speak a word about. Now, when a student entered medical school, he studied anatomy right off. No Roman in the gloaming. And her school cut up a cadaver. Except there weren't enough cadavers. Executed criminals were the only legitimate source of supply. Therefore, a new occupation sprang up and flourished. Grave snatching. Piecework in corpses. Rob a grave of its contents and sell it to science. Yet, the supply didn't meet the demand. So, as in every profession, there were those who looked for shortcuts. Burke and Hare came up with one. They owned that room I told you about. A room in Tanner's Close. I'm tired of waiting for him to die, Burke. Go look at him. Yes, I can't tell whether he's breathing or not. The old man's so skinny, so sick. Here if his heart beats. It beats. Such a skinny man. Such a sick, skinny man. Such a sick, skinny old man. And he will not die. Burke. I. The other who sought lodging here and who died brought us eight pounds. Aye. This one? Aye. He's older than the last. Dr. Knox will not be happy of him. However, we should not accept less than eight pounds. Aye. Hair. Is there more whiskey hair? Nor food. Uh, Nothing. Nothing save an old sick-skinned man who takes space and will not die. It's so cold. So cold. Well, my hands be numb. Whiskey would warm them from the fingertips. From the fingertips... There. Aye? There. Say, man, if this old man were to die this minute, if we were to stuff him in the tea chest this minute... And walk with him to the anatomy laboratory of Dr. Knox. And Dr. Knox pays upon delivery. We would have whiskey in a half hour from now. And that is if this old man were to die this minute... But that would be murder. Tood. Have you ever done a thing like that? No, 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 no. Such an old man. To lie sick. To suffer in a cold room. Wet room. No family to give him comfort. <sighs> Poor old man. Back. Aye. To kill him would be to bruise him. Dr. Knox perhaps would not accept a corpse unprettied by bruises. However. What? However, if I, if I put my hand over his nose and mouth like this. Jamie, it's such a time like, oh, such a time to come. And he's gone. 
Hold his feet here so he'll not kick. I'll lad like that. If he did, I'll listen to his heart. Is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead? Dead. You have called me from my lecturing, gentlemen. To insist upon it, I think... Enough words, Dr. Knox. Take a look. Hmm? Was it worth calling you away for, Doctor? Mm, half hour dead, I'd say. Less, wouldn't you say, Hare? Oh, I'd say it was worth more than eight pounds. Fine specimen. Fresh. Ten pounds. I'm not a quibbler, gentlemen. As a matter of fact, I'm on record as saying that quibbling is a... The lecture's in the other room, Doctor. Uh, just give us the tenor. Certainly. Here. Thank you. Mm. Two bodies in a week, gentlemen. Basis for an acquaintanceship, do you know, think? Therefore, if I might make a suggestion. Suggest away. Two bodies in a week. Both male. My students, when they will become physicians, will be called upon to administer to both sexes. Therefore, you want a lady. Good day, gentlemen. I was back to my students. Dr. Knox had more students than anybody. He was much admired in the city of Edinburgh, a man of culture and wit and an excellent surgeon. A democratic man, he got along as well with the aristocracy of the city as with its murderers. A proof? Ain't that Dr. Knox a nice gent, hey? A ruggy boo. A danny man. <laughs> proof, as furnished by Burke and Hare. Two fellows with ten, less what they paid for a bottle. He said he wanted a lady. Have a drink. I... A real ruggy-boo, that Dr. Knox. Rick. And arm-in-arm, arm, they walked through the slums of Edinburgh. And they looked fine against this background. Rags and bones and cat skin and human hair and cast-off shoes. Trinkets and fish heads. Secondhand goods pervade the people who were dying the instant they were born. Stalls of tatters, shops of fragments and shame, alleys and filth, ten years old. And through it, chameleons, burke and hair. Have a drink, Mr. Hare. <laughs> Have a drink. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, lad. Have a drink. Who knew? Here's a coin, lad. Thank you. You got a song I can sing for you? Oh, have a drink, lad. 
Oh, no, sir, Mr. Burke. Oh, no, sir, Mr. Burke. <laughs> like an angel, he says it. <laughs> angel with cheek like down between my fingers. He'll have a drink. No, sir. Oh, you run, give the coin to your mother, boy. Funky. Come along, Hare. I... Uh, I was saying, Hare... About Dr. Knox, you were saying. I... What his lack was. What he said he's needing. Have a drink. Hey, there's no more in it here. <laughs> Ain't me wanting a drink. Aye, there's a place. Aye. Aye, aye, barman. A bottle of your finest. Aye, that's the word, barman. The finest. The finest for Burke and Hare. <laughs> and have a drink, Mr. Hare. Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, uh, I would drink Burke. Hey, Billy Burke! <laughs> Mary, Mary, Mary. A lady. Such as ladies are in this corner of Edinburgh. Yes. <laughs> 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 Tell me a one so I can do a laughing too. A fable, Mary. Pretty Mary. Bonnie Mary. And not for your ears. And what of my ears? Oh, dainty and little pearl shell. <laughs> <laughs> give us a kiss. Uh, give us a copper. Good, Mary. Yeah, have a copper, Mary. Give us a kiss, Mary. Uh, a bargain's a bargain. Ain't it? Such pretty shoulders on you. What'd you say? Uh, such pretty shoulders. Uh, you're a darling. Now, is it true Mary was painted by an artist? Uh, true. A dolly lad with a beard. A tickling beard. Yeah. <laughs> Aye, Mary. It's a copper. You need lodgings tonight, Mary. Aye. One more copper and I can pay for it. Well, I got a clean room, a lodgings room. Next to my covering shop, I got one. Aye, I've heard. And, and from the looks of your shoes, Mary, you could send some cobbling. Uh, with what money? For free. Now, ain't them pretty words, Mary? For free. Oh. <laughs> for free. Cobbling for your pretty feeties. And, and, and a clean bed. Now, come along, Mary. What trick? Come along, Mary. Is it a trick? Oh, come along, Mary. You wouldn't have played a trick, would you? <laughs> you just come along. Oh, very well. So Burke and Hare and Mary Patterson went to the room under the gutter, and Mary took off her shoes to cobble. <laughs> and she lay down in bed to sleep. Ah, she was very beautiful. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. The fighting in Korea has stopped, but the nation's need for blood donors goes on. If you've given blood, don't lose interest now. During peacetime, America has its chance to build vital blood reserves to the point where no emergency, whatever its magnitude, 
catches us unprepared. Give blood regularly, the painless way to be prepared. Call your local Red Cross chapter or local hospital blood bank for an appointment. And now once again, Thomas Hyland and the second act of Crime Classics. And his report to you on If a Body Need a Body, Just Call Bert and Hare. In the winter of 1826, Edinburgh was a talk again about the latest appearance of the Loch Ness Monster. And speaking of lochs, Edinburgh was also a talk about the Loch Fenwick Imbruglio, whereby Sir Angus McDermott was stripped of his tartan and forced to flee with his six sons to the Netherlands, where they were received with snickers by the populace. Having been thus rocked, Edinburgh was little prepared for what was in store. For in Tanner's Close, a street that spilled into a pigsty, there lived two men. As sure as my name is Billy Burke, she's a pretty. And Billy Burke's friend, Billy Hare. Aye. And a bonny sleeper. Aye. Hold. Hold her. Is she dead? Is she dead? Aye. Is she dead? Said I. What's gotten to you, man? And such a bonny sleeper. So. Why must I slap you so, man? Do me a thing, Burke. Aye. That pretty thing. Is she dead? I said it. Now what's gotten to you? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Didn't you feel the slaps, man? (laughs) What is it? She'll be dead. Aye, she'll fetch 20 pounds in the dead market. Aye. Now, give us a hand. What What did you do to her? Hair! Yes. Billy, hair, what? Oh. Hair! Oh. Oh. The thing you did to her. Then, then, you remember, that's the gutter right above the only window in the room. Then, Carrying her in this rain. Let's wait a bit. Maybe it'll stop. And they sat there, the two of them, their presence making complete the nightmare scene. The room of moistened shadows, of a girl dead, of a heaping of rags in the corner, clothes of two others who had died there. And outside, the thin yelping... And outside, the thin hand still outstretched Uh, 
need out of here, Bert. I? I need out of here, Bert. Fetch the tea chest. I need out of here, Bert. I. I lied. Seven that you invited me for tea, Dr. Knox. A ritual, sir. To all who come to me to learn. I, um, I like to get to know my young doctors. <laughs> no doctor yet. Ah, uh, but as good as one. It is said from London north to here, in all of the cities there is no greater teacher in the field of anatomical study than you, sir. I see that. Wherever doctors gather. <laughs> those who have studied with you are assured of a future. Uh, oh, hold your thought, young man. I'll return in a moment. Who is it? Oh, close your lamp, Dr. Knox. Quick, man, who is it? Bart, for Conheya. And the teacher. Oh, inside. Quick, Ed. Eh? Ed, what have you? You made a suggest the last time we were here to deliver, Doctor. Well, well. Show him. Aye. How close your lamp when you look what we've brought you. Good. Good? Twenty pounds good? That good? Yeah. Twenty pounds? Here? Okay. What? What's the matter, Doctor? Why is her hand clenched so tightly? Why, I, I'm sure, sir, that... Well, let's have a look. Let's have uh, a Tighten? There. Ah. Two coppers. I wonder. You wonder what, Doctor? Such a pretty she is. Why do be clenching so tight to two coppers in her hand? Why, I wonder that too. Oh, yes, so do I. I have a guest. Good evening, gentlemen. Now, young sir, I believe you're holding a thought. What is it? Eventually, it stopped raining, and life went on in the alleys of Edinburgh, and over the counters and stalls, the second-hand things were bartered for, became necessities for a time, and were bartered again. And from these alleys, Sixteen people known disappeared. Sixteen people to whom death, too, was somehow secondhand, having known dying every day of their existence. One of them... Twenty pounds life Give the boy a copper, Mr. Hare. Aye. Here. Catch. Auntie. <laughs> now... Come along and I'll cobble your pair of shoes, lad. Oh, I, I, I don't... Uh... Oh, for free, lad. For free. Funky, funky. 
And two days later, around the corner and down the street and up a hall and through a gate and up a walk and through a door. Now, if you'll come closer, young doctors, you will see how an incision from the umbilicus to this point, the sternum, then laterally... Dr. Knock. A moment, please, sir, and I'll answer the question. Such an incision made with... Uh, Dr. Knock. Oh, such insistence. Very well. Not very well at all, however. I I'm sure this boy has been murdered. Murdered? Two nights ago, I saw this boy. He was singing a song in Tanner's Close. Tanner's Close? That garbage scout? This boy is known as Jamie. I know, for I spoke with him. And he sang a song for me. And he was well. And, sir? Aye? There is a bruise here. Come, look close here. At his throat. Surely that is a bruise. Young sir, what are you after? So much talk of how bodies are obtained for dissection. Therefore... Young sir, what are you after? Surely you would not condone murder as a source of supply. Young sir, you have not answered my question. When I have asked you, what are you after? I mean, is it to become a physician? Yes, sir. And a healer? Yes, sir. And knowledgeable in your profession? Yes, sir. Then admit, sir, that the study of the human body is a prime requisite. Of course. Return to your place, sir. Yes, sir. The incision I now make from the umbilicus toward this point on the sternum. Lady, lady, now. You want to buy Ragsborn Thugger? You want what? to sell. And what to sell? Come see. Where? I've got a place. Rags. A big bag full. I'll come to look. Then come. Come. A bit. This be my son-in-law, gents. Mind the stall, Gray. I go with these gents to buy. Where be this place? In Tanner's Close, near the end. Near the pigsty? Aye. Oh, love me. How can you live there? Some say it is difficult, Granny. Come, come. Speak up, son. My Mimsy. Who be you? I'm Gray. Mimsy's son-in-law. Mimsy, who you took last night. Ah. Who you took last night to Celtic. She didn't return. All the night long awaited. Why, lad? Why? Where is she? She's gone. I gone. To, to where did my Mimsy go? Gentle lad, gentle. Away with your hand. Such a big lad. Such a big... What's up? Now, lad, now. Mimsy's soul. A mistake, lad. Mimsy's shawl. And here. The shirt of her. And blood. Now, gentle lad. Uh, now, here. Uh, take a fiver and... Blood. And take... Blood. All these rags. 
Mamsie! Hold him back. I'll get me a knife. Here's Mamsie. Under the rug, this Mamsie. The boy finally got himself understood by the police. They came then to Tanner's Close and found Mimsy. Then they found Burke and Hare. Then uh, they were asked if they had anything to do with Mimsy's death. I done it. And to 17 others. Just like that. Confessed. For some reason that history makes obscure or just doesn't like to talk about, Hare was let free. Burke, however, suffered the last penalty of the law. He was brought to the gibbet, his heart pounding. The rope was placed about his neck. And his body was delivered to Dr. Monroe's academy, where it was dissected by young sirs on their way to becoming doctors. And Dr. Knox, and Dr. Knox, buyer of murdered men... He fled from scandal and disappeared. But one source has it that he was seen some ten years later, walking the narrow street in Edinburgh called Tanner's Close. Walking northward toward the pigsty. In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. Burke and Hare, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Jack Crucian was heard as Mr. Burke, and Jay Novello as Mr. Hare. Featured in tonight's cast were William Johnstone, Jeanette Nolan, Charles Davis, Betty Harford, and Richard Peel. Bob Lamont speaking. Here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Washington, D.C., on the night of April 14, 1865. My report to you will be on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Thank you. Good night. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. This is a dream. This is a portent. This is the shape of things to come. A man dreams of walking down a vaulted and empty corridor. Soldier. 
Soldier. Sir? Who lies dead here? Look for yourself, sir. Can you see who it is, sir? Yes. Who is it? It is I. Tonight, my report to you on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Crime Classics, a series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Hyland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Hyland. It was April in 1865, and it was Washington, D.C. A hero had come into the city. His name was Grant, a general of the time who, a few days before, had accepted surrender from another general of the time, whose name was Lee. So it was a time of victory celebration, of burning candles for prayer and illumination and thanksgiving, of dancing in the streets, of noises and silences of reunion, of shrill, of tears, the sounds that mankind makes when something is won or lost forever, or returns, or perishes. That was the sound John F. Parker made as he throws a whiskey bottle against the wall of the room. His friend was happy, too. Open another bottle, Marie. Sure. Do it. Now, lean back your head. Slow now. Trickle is. <laughs> open! Open! I told her downstairs I didn't want to be disturbed. Ah, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. Whoever it is. I'll send them away. Send them away. Go away. Go away! Go away. Is John... Go away. Get out of my way. Get up, Parker. William, you got no right to... Now get up. You, you woman... What do you want? Where's this stuff? There. Yeah. Let's go, Parker. What for? What for? You got duty tonight. Oh, no. You're guarding President Lincoln. John F. Parker, member of the Metropolitan Police Force of Washington, the District of Columbia. John F. Parker... A rum pot. He was about 35 years old, and he was married. And the laughing lady you just heard was not his wife. He had been in the Union Army for a little while, but was dismissed from it for the good of the war effort. His record shows that he couldn't hold an assignment to any one beat for any length of time. 
for reasons ranging from sleeping in an alley on his beat or sleeping in a doorway on his beat. This is a man who was assigned to guard President Lincoln. How did this happen? Simply, Mrs. Lincoln wrote a note. To Provost Marshal James R. O'Bairn, this is to certify that John F. Parker, a member of the Metropolitan Police, has been detailed for duty at the Executive Mansion by order of Mrs. Lincoln. Why did Mrs. Lincoln write such a note? No one ever asked her, so I can't say. But we know that John F. Parker, more or less sober, appeared at the White House, and he and Mrs. Lincoln had a small chat. There are rumors, of course, Mr. Parker. You must have heard them. Rumors, ma'am? About Mr. Lincoln. About Mr. Lincoln, ma'am? That there are conspirators, and attempts will be made on his life. Yes, ma'am. Uh, ma'am? Yes, Mr. Parker? May I ask a question? Of course. Why was I selected to bodyguard Mr. Lincoln? Because... Mary, Mary, prevail upon him. Prevail upon him. Well, what's the matter, Mr. Lincoln? General Grant here. He's changed his mind. That's right, Mrs. Lincoln, I have. Prevail upon him, Mary. Oh, but surely, General, the people are expecting you. All over Washington, they expect an appearance from you, and it's the theater tonight. It's impossible. But suddenly you tell us it's impossible. Why? I'm going home. I'm going to Burlington. But tomorrow you can go to Burlington. Tonight. General... Ma'am? Even the newspapers headline your name above Mr. Lincoln. Surely for such a privilege you would not be I've been long from home, ma'am. Yes. Yes, you have. Goodbye, Mrs. Lincoln. Mr. Lincoln? Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. It troubles me. What does? Oh, suddenly he changed his mind. Strangenesses are... Mr. Lincoln... Yes, ma'am. This is your guard, and his name is John Parker. How do you do, sir? Mr. President. I did not wish to appear rude, sir. In truth, I did not see you. This, uh, you may go, Mr. Parker. Mary. What if you won't go to the theater with us? What matter? We'll ask that young couple, that Major... Major Rathbone you seem so these with. We'll... Uh, what is it, Mr. Lincoln? Melancholy. Warm thing. The infinite sadness. There's victory now. No, no, listen. You should know it. For it has lain against me for a week now. Chill and grim. And I fear. What are you trying to say? I dreamed. And now I must tell you of it. For I can no longer bear the coldness and heaviness of it. I dreamed. And this is what it was. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs as if a person were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. And there the silence was broken by the same pitiful sobbing. But the mourner wasn't visible. I arrived at the east room which I entered. There I met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards. Who lies dead here? I asked one of them. He bade me look for myself. And I did. And I saw that it was I who lay there. Dead by an assassin. 
Mary. You should not have told me of it. Mary, Mary, Mary. You should not have told me of it. Famous man you be. Nah, Mary. And we'll drink it. Bartender, hand us back the bottle. For me, famous man. <laughs> I will. It's such a toast. It's nothing but another duty. To guard a president. Now we drink it. Everybody! Everybody! Shush, you, Millie. John here is going to guard the purple. You just sit down, Millie, and shut up. Oh, no. Just drink and shut up. No. John? What do you want? How come I saw in the paper what I did? What are you talking about? Today in the newspaper. About what? A report on the telegraph that was in the paper. A newspaper in New York had it that Mr. Lincoln was murdered. He was murdered yesterday. What? The truth. What it said right in the newspaper, the president had been assassinated. That's crazy. Well, I saw it. You get a newspaper. You'll see it, too. Mischief. That's what it is. Drink your drink. But it was true. Several newspapers in different sections of the country had it that Mr. Lincoln had been slain, which, of course, was not so. This was late afternoon of April 14th, and Mr. Lincoln was alive, spending time with Mr. Stanton, his secretary of war, then with his valet, who attended him while he dressed, then with Mrs. Lincoln. Mr. Lincoln was alive, and in good mood. How nice you look, Mary. Thank you, Mr. Lincoln. Uh, the carriage is waiting. And Major Rathbun and his fiancée? At Senator Harris's home. He'll pick them up. The young lady is very comely. Yes. We'll be late. My arm. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Parker, sir. Mr. Parker. The driver knows where to go, does he not? Ford's Theater. Ford's Theater. All right, driver. It was a raw night, and before they reached the theater, it drizzled a little, then stopped. And all over Washington, tens of thousands of candles burned. Backdrop for victory, for celebration, for remembrance. Backdrop for tears.
You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. The Orient Express, a famous trans-Europe train, is the setting for Marlena Dietrich's latest thrilling adventure on Time for Love tomorrow evening. CBS Radio brings you a romantic woman of mystery involved in espionage for high stakes in the character of Diane LaVolta, played by Miss Dietrich. Remember, on most of these stations tomorrow night, it's time for romantic mystery on Time for Love. And now once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on The Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I would like to speak to you briefly about what I consider to be a fairly uninteresting play. It's called Our American Cousin, a drama in three acts by Tom Taylor. There were characters in it with such names as Lord Dundreary, Captain DeBoots, Mr. Buddycombe, and Mrs. Mount Chesington. I would like to give you an example of the kind of entertainment the play provided. One of the ladies says, Why, Papa, it's a letter from my dear brother Ned. He writes from Brattleboro, Vermont. It is quite well. And just come in from a shooting excursion. With a party of crows. Splendid fellow, six feet high. And Lord Nundreary answers to the effect that he is amazed to hear of birds six feet high. That they must be tremendous animals indeed. And the actress answers... Oh, I see what my brother means. A tribe of engines called crows. Not birds. Now, that's not very sparkling, is it? But... This is the play that the president elected to see on the night of April 14, 1865. When he entered the theater with his party, Laura Keene, the actress playing the part of Florence Trenchard, was speaking her lines in an early scene of Act One. Thank you, Mr. Ford. We are always delighted to be guests of your theater. Thank you very much, Mr. Ford. I'll take care of the president, the major, and the ladies. Where will you sit, Mr. Parker? There's a chair out here in the hall for me. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. You sit there in the rocker, Mr. President. Mrs. Lincoln, the Major, and you, lady. Right there. And if anybody wants anything, I'll be right outside in the hall. I thought I could catch him before I reached the house. Now, John Parker was a fidgety man, and he knew it. So, to soothe the fidgets, he had a bottle tucked away. It was a dull evening, and John Parker never liked plays anyhow. Just sit. The drone of the play. Walk around a little. Notice that a peephole had been bored into the door of the president's box, and not wonder why. No wonder why no other boxes were occupied. Just other people enjoying themselves, not him. Yeah. Because it was dreary and his bottle was empty. I would like to say that five years later, John Parker was fired from the police for falling asleep under a lamppost, not for leaving the president unguarded, which he did this night left the president and went to the bar across the street. 
What will you have, sir? Whiskey. And the oysters, dozen. Yes, sir. Uh, blue point. Ah, uh, blue point. Market. I'll be with you. Not in a minute. Immediately. What about my oysters? Uh, just a second, sir. What can I do for you, Mr. Booth? Brandy. Oh, there's a now. Here's your money. The change is yours, Barkeep. Thank you, Mr. Booth. John Wilkes Booth was 27 years old. He was an actor, had achieved some success in Shakespearean roles. A handsome man, a darling of women. A man who sported black flowing ties and an Inverness cape and an ivory-headed cane. It is interesting to note that he had been a member of the Virginia Regiment, which captured and executed John Brown. It is interesting to note, too, that his father, who was Junius Brutus Booth, was insane. John Wilkes Booth just passed John Parker and went out of the bar and into the street and walked south for four blocks to a livery stable. Here, two men waited for him. Mr. Booth, I thought you wouldn't get here. Whose name was Louis Payne. I knew he'd get here. <laughs> him. Whose name was George E. Atzerote. Him. <laughs> Can't stop him. Not John Wilkes, nobody can. How does it go, gentlemen? Are we ready? Not him. <laughs> not him, Mr. Booth. What is this? He's not going. <laughs> Shut up. I'll kill him if you say the word, Mr. Booth. <laughs> He'll stop. Just leave him alone. He'll stop. He told me just a moment ago. He said he's not going through with it. Yes, he will. I'll kill him if you want me to. Don't lust too much for killing, Mr. Payne. Kill those who need it. Only those. Not that I'm afraid, me. No, no. Just no. excited, is that it? Not going. Not going. That's your word. You see? Silence, Mr. Payne. He'll want all of it. Little man. <laughs> Little man, you would, too. You'd ruin all of it. You know what you have to do. Have to. Ask him, no, no, no. Ask him why. Ask Mr. Payne. Mr. Payne? But he's got no reasons. Ask him why. Say to you, I am at the Kirkwood house in the room near the man, near the vice president, near Andrew Johnson. Yes. Near I see him. Knife and gun I have. Here, here. And in the room, in, in the place, he hit on the door, and when he opened the door, shoot him. Do it. Oh, the knife. No, I can't. Of course you can. In my head, I see you doing that to him, and I can't. Of course you can. No, yeah, you no. see, little man. Yeah, no. Listen to him, little man. No. He's mad. No, I... As each of us is mad, Mr. Payne. <laughs> Madness suckles us, and the warmth of it goes down easily. You are mad, and I am the little man. <laughs> and he, most honestly, the little man. Are you trying to say that you are insane too, Mr. Payne? Is there doubt of it? You are sworn to kill this night, Mr. Seward, Secretary of State to this country of evil men. And he, little man, <laughs> tonight you will be a hero. And listen, little man, when it is done, when Andrew Johnson is dead, I will give you a present. A thing that sparkles and shines. 
and you will love it. Will it be round? Round. And you will do what I tell you to do. <laughs> will it be wasted upon the two of you if I say, We lie deep in fair darkness. Yet, at our side, glory. Go, do what you must. And each of them took a horse from the stable and rode away. This little man, George Atzerod, became confused and just rode to exhaustion, and he did not kill. And Mr. Payne, he entered the home of Mr. Seward and fractured the skull of Mr. Seward's son and cut the throat of Mr. Seward, so it was feared for a time he would die. And John Wilkes Booth, he rode toward the theater, and a block from it, in a shadow pool that edged the fall of light from the street lamp, Anna Surratt waited there. John Wilkes. Yes? Now the time has come. Now what you're going to do will be done. Yes. You on your horse, dear. And the fever in your heart to do this thing. I cannot tell you now again not to do this thing. No. For burning. Yes. For hating. Yes. How do these things find place among all the tenderness of you? I wish I knew. I cannot. No. Oh, I love you. And now only a small way more, one block more, and John Wilkes Booth rode it. And John Parker, bodyguard to the President of the United States, he was still in the same bar where we left him, choking down another tumbler of whiskey, drinking his way into history's oblivion. Then Booth was at the theater. That was the last of old Mark Fletcher. You just burned up for... Abraham Lincoln, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Herb Butterfield was heard as Lincoln, Jack Edwards as John Wilkes Booth, and Clayton Post as John Parker. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, William Conrad, Mary Jane Croft, Betty Lou Gerson, Sammy Hill, Barney Phillips, Roy Glenn, and Junius Matthews. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Shrewsbury, England, in the year 1684. My report to you will be on two people who wanted to be happy. So they killed his wife. It is listed in my files as John and Judith, their crime, and why they didn't get to enjoy it. Thank you. Good night. Yeah.